I wake up every morning and I think about one thing. What am I going to do for rural America, particularly rural North Dakota today? And I do that because there's not a lot of people here who do. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp, who is a pivotal, if endangered, voice in the Senate. She won election in 2012 by less than 3,000 votes, and she is up for re-election now and is arguably Republicans' top target. Senator Heitkamp sat down with me on Thursday morning. We talked to the Affordable Care Act and how she's approaching Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. As a North Dakotan, the senator is also one of the most thoughtful voices in the chamber on rural health care and maternal mortality. So we had an extensive discussion there, too. You've heard it before. I'll say it again. We keep this podcast going with your help and support. So share Politico Pulse Check. Rate us on your favorite podcast app. Just search Politico Pulse Check. We read those reviews every day. Listener Wasabi082018 suggested that we have more episodes where two people with different views, like when Andy Slavitt and Arkansas Health Chief Cindy Gillespie faced off over work requirements. It's a great suggestion. We'll absolutely do that again in upcoming episodes. And now, here's my conversation with Senator Heidi Heitkamp. Senator Heidi Heitkamp, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Well, thank you for having me. We are in your hideaway in the Capitol, which is where you go to hide away from reporters like me, <laughs> or when Congress gets too crazy. Can, no, can you describe that's not it? That's true. Well, it's 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 this little, very small room, no windows, but cozy. Let's say it's cozy. Um, but it, it, it allows me to not run back and forth for meetings. And so it um, gives me an opportunity to see as many people, especially North Dakotans, who are always a little freaked out when they have to um, navigate these uh, the twists and turns. And here's a little bit of trivia. Someone told me, so I won't claim that I've independently researched this. But before the Capitol Police got their whole building um, over on the other side behind uh, Dirksen, um, these were Capitol Police offices. And so when the Capitol Police moved out, then that opened up a whole bank of of, um, rooms that now have become senatorial hideaways. And so it used to be that um, very few senators had hideaways over in the Capitol. Now pretty much we all do. I don't know about law and order, but I will say this is a very orderly hideaway. It's very clean. Let's let's start with this. You're running for re-election. Your campaign just released an ad touting the benefits of protecting pre-existing conditions. This is Denise. She lives in Kildare. Like 300,000 North Dakotans, Denise has a pre-existing condition that used to mean no health insurance. You don't mention the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare in that ad. Why not? You know, it's interesting because people don't talk to me about Obamacare. When I ran six years ago, people would always say, what's your position on Obamacare? Or they very seldom say the Affordable uh, Care Act, but what's your position on Obamacare? And then I would say, I'd love to talk about Obamacare, but can we talk about health care first? And they would always kind of look at me like, what's the difference? And then I would explain that, that, that health care is a very broad um, concern that we should all have and that not every issue regarding health care was going to be resolved or in any way um, was addressed in by the Affordable Care Act. 
Um, and, and it was a simple message. The message was, let's keep the good, get rid of the bad. And it was um, something that I acted on right away. One of the first things I did when I got here is I formed a, a health care advisory committee. I think everybody kind of thought that was just box checking, but I have really engaged with the healthcare care um, community, and it has grown to a lot of people. When, so, when you say you want to keep the good in the ACA and get rid of the bad or fix the bad, mm-hmm. what's the bad in the ACA? I think the bad is that the exchanges don't work, that what we've seen is this, this on again, off again. If you look at the exchanges and you ask people, you know, what's the biggest problem um, with, with, with uh, the cost of health insurance and health care costs rising, you know, Rand Corporation did a study. 12% of the people in this country account for 40% of utilization. So that tells you that they have four more high chronic, high rates of chronic disease that need to be better managed. And a lot of those folks aren't employable, or if they are, it's very short term. So they're on and off the exchange. And as a result, they drive up costs. And so what what I would say is taking a look at how we can do better in terms of providing health care, but lowering the cost of their health care could be, be, you know, absolutely one of those things that could change the outcome in driving down health care costs. I think the other thing that, that I would say is that we uh, it didn't do enough to curtail the cost of prescription drugs. Um, we should have had a reinsurance program. It didn't guarantee cost-sharing payments. And there's these cliff events on the exchange that basically um, mean you're either subsidized or you're not. And so it really creates an atmosphere where somebody will only work up to the limit, and that frustrates employers, and it should frustrate all of us. So we've, we've introduced bills to fix all of that. And then one of the, the big challenges is those young, healthier families not being able to get an affordable product on the exchange, especially if they're, if they're working. So I would say the exchanges are a problem, but I also would say that one of the big issues that I have is that the health care bill did not do enough to really examine the rising cost of, of health care. It simply tries to manage who pays for it as opposed to how do we reduce it. So those are some of the problems. Getting back to one of the things that you really liked, the protections for pre existing conditions. President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh, some fear could be the deciding vote in a lawsuit to roll back the protections of the ACA. You haven't said how you're voting, but given your concern over pre-existing condition protections, isn't that enough to oppose Kavanaugh's? I I think anyone who thinks they know how somebody's going to vote when they get to the Supreme Court is a fool. Um, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who was a governor who said, you know, um, you know, he's been surprised pretty much with every one of his nominees to the state Supreme Court and, and to the state court. And so, I mean, what I look at is, um, is this settled law, which I think it is. I think the Affordable Care Act and, and the patient protection provisions are settled law. I think that this is a nominee who has said that he respects stare decisis. The Supreme Court has seen it once. Um, and and furthermore, you have to remember, Kennedy wasn't the swing vote on the ACA. No, it was Roberts. Yeah. So there is a, a case where Justice Kavanaugh, or Judge Kavanaugh had said that he believed the president could decide to disregard laws that the president thought was unconstitutional. He will probably be asked that in his hearings in front of the Senate. If Kavanaugh says, yes, the judge could decide or the president could decide that the ACA doesn't need to be enforced, would that be a deal breaker for you? I mean, I think we're going to cross that bridge when we get there. I doubt very much whether he's going to say that. I heard you on a call just yesterday with patients who had 
pre-existing conditions. You've talked about this too as a breast cancer survivor. So clearly this is an issue you care a lot about and think a lot about. But, but be honest, when you heard that the Trump administration was backing a lawsuit that would roll back the ACA's protections, did you did you wonder what they were thinking politically? Did your political strategist do a little dance? I, you know what? Um, let's take the first step. When, when the state AGs filed a lawsuit to completely repeal all of the patient protections, everybody forgets that what's at stake in this litigation is not just pre-existing conditions in the community rating. What's at stake in this litigation is also your kids, twenty-six years up to 26 years old, being on your, your uh, health insurance, Medicaid expansion. They all of these are asking, coverage all pieces. Of, everything is at stake in this litigation. Litigation. And so I would have had a problem with this litigation even without the, the administration's position. Now, the administration has weighed in and said that, that they believe that with the elimination of the individual mandate that pre-existing conditions have to fall. I think that's the wrong position legally. Um, and I think this is something that, that um, uh, I think it's ill-advised and I think that it is um, cold-hearted especially in light of the fact that they've said we don't ever want to repeal pre-existing conditions. I was just in the um, uh, oversight hearing with, uh, with CMS, and you know, it's not wasn't her decision to decide to to pursue this path. But I kind of looked at her. I said, "You cannot say you're protecting pre-existing conditions at the same time that the administration is in court arguing to eliminate that protection out of federal law." That, that's just two inconsistent positions. And so it is clear that um, this administration has taken the position that uh, the patient protections uh, regard, surrounding pre-existing conditions are, are unconstitutional and need to be eliminated from the law. And the Trump administration will argue in court, I believe, September 5th in, in this case. One reason I wanted to talk to you, Senator, was because of your work to improve care for Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, who consistently have some of the worst health outcomes in the country. Infant mortality for natives, 1.5 times higher than for white Americans. Stroke, nearly two times higher. In your view, as someone who represents a population that is, is higher native than average, why are native health outcomes so bad? I think that first you have to examine rates of poverty, and, and um, the fact that most uh, Native Americans live in rural health care situations. So high rates of poverty, high rates of childhood trauma, which we know lead to higher rates of chronic disease um, a- as people age. In fact, there have been studies done that if you have four or more adverse childhood experiences, you will have 20 years less life expectancy. So you've got to look at kind of the social economic conditions that Native Americans live in. But I think also, and and you know, not without some controversy, as more and more science backs this up, they also suffer from uh, uh, generational or historic trauma, trauma yeah. and that trauma leads to poor health outcomes. And we have signed treaties with Native Americans saying we're going to provide you health care, but if you look at the relative costs, now we're taking a high risk population with lots of chronic disease, diabetes, um, related to introductions of new diet. I mean, we could go through all of the the kind of um, things that have happened over the last 200 years or 300 years 
to Native American people. But if you if you go through all of those and then look at what the expenditure is under Indian Health Services, it's a fraction. It's a fraction of what we spend in Medicare and Medicaid. That's why I've been really pushing for um, uh, for Medicaid. Uh, you know, for for all Native Americans to enroll either in traditional Medicaid or Medicaid expansion. I broke some news on the Medicaid front earlier this year that the Trump administration is trying to push work requirements but did not want to exempt Native Americans from from these work requirements. Your office and other offices signed a letter pushing back on that. Can you explain why is it so important for Native Americans to be exempted from work requirements? Number number one, the the, the one thing, how I see Medicaid – in Native American populations is augmenting the treaty right that tribes already have. It doesn't say, you know, we're going to give you health care if you work. It says, you know, you've bargained, you've signed an agreement with the federal government, we're going to provide education, housing, health care. You know, and I think a lot of Native Americans have given up that we're ever going to fully comply with the treaties. But on health care, those health care outcomes are absolutely critical to getting a healthy population, which is critical to the economic development. And and the the other thing that I would say is that rural America, um, when you look at rates of poverty and at unemployment, a lot of Native people want to stay in Indian country. And until we have come up with ways to grow the economics of Indian country, it's really, I think it is cruel to say, you know, we're going to impose a work requirement when the, the rate, the, the, the available jobs are so minimal. Let me repeat that back to you, that in Indian country, it's hard to comply with the work requirement sure. because there aren't jobs available. In many cases, the biggest employer might be the Indian Health Service right. or the federal or government. Or the tribe. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the nearest town might be 150 miles away. And some places, I mean, when you get down to the Southwest, um, some communities you have to helicopter in. Look up in in Canada uh, or in um, poor poor Alaska. It's not Canada. But, I mean, when you go to Alaska, I mean— Did did we just annex Canada on this podcast? We we now have a 51st state we have to worry about. Lisa Murkowski— Every time I talk about remoteness and, and the rural nature of Indian country in North Dakota, she just laughs at me and tells me a story that, that just gets me kind of thinking about how vast Alaska is. And there's another great example of where, um, you know, you, you've got to, you, you can't put the cart before the horse. And by that, I mean, in order to grow economic opportunities, you have to have a healthy workforce. So to simply say, we're not going to let you be healthy or give you the means to be healthy, is it's, it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. You obviously don't support work requirements for Native Americans. Do you support work requirements for any population? I think anybody who is able-bodied and who can work should work. Um, I don't think this is a benefit. I think most people will look at it and say, you know, the truly disabled, the truly needy, we're okay with that. But if you can work, you ought to work. Plus, I think it's good for people to work. Now, that doesn't mean that it should be some something draconian that um, uh, takes away health care from disabled people, takes away health care from from uh, uh, folks that that truly can't work or who can't find employment who are, or are not skilled enough to find employment. So when you look at it, um, I think that you have to look at job training in in uh, connection with with work requirements. But I think the 
people best positioned to make those decisions is not the federal government. I think it's the states. They have skin in the game as it relates to Medicaid. Um, uh, we should we should let the states design those programs. So you would support a limited work requirement, but the state has to play the key role. That's correct. This is a healthcare podcast. You represent a, a largely rural state, and it, it just seems like rural healthcare is broken right now. Uh, small hospitals closing, doctors getting harder to recruit. I've talked to hospital leaders, even at the Mayo Clinic, who have said, we just can't figure out how to make the dollars work. You're co-chair of the Senate's Rural Health uh, Caucus, which is bipartisan, I should, should add. Am I right, Senator? Is rural health care broken? And if so, how do we fix it? I think rural health care is on life support. Um, we've been able to do things like the 340B program, um, do things like critical access hospitals. We've been able to kind of patch this together, put little little fixes and, and try and at least help them cash flow, give them a fighting chance to stay open. But well, just, I think we to need jump, to redesign all of that. And just to jump in for listeners who might not know, the 340B program, that's a drug discount program to help hospitals deliver drugs to low-income populations, critical access hospitals, a different funding stream to help hospitals that might be Serving. That's right, and and for a lot, if if the three forty B program goes away, a lot of our hospitals won't make it in rural America, and so it's a critical uh, program. We're still challenged by physician, you know, uh, supervision. We're challenged by a seventy two hour rule. So we continue to kind of. Um, kick that can down the road and, and push it forward. Reimbursements for paraprofessionals or advanced uh, uh, practice nurses, all of those issues are, are issues that are allowing us to continue to provide services in rural America. But, but the challenge, and I've had long uh, conversations with Seema Verma about what does this look like into the future? We're trying to, we're trying to maintain today, but look up. What's the best system into the future? We've already began collaborating. I think North Dakota would be a great place to test a lot of the theories about um, some kind of managed care for the population. But um, I would say reimbursement is always a challenge, keeping the door open, making sure that we have have um, resources. Plus, if you look at um, rural areas in North Dakota, they tend to be older than average. And the rural health care that's provided tends to be geriatrics. I, I don't want to skip past this point. So you've talked to Seema Verma, the CMS administrator. I heard you publicly thank her at, at the oversight hearing. What does that model look like specifically? I, th- I think it looks collaborative. It looks like what are all the healthcare resources in the community that we can call on and how do we work those together? But how do we guarantee a funding stream so that people know that the reimbursements are going to be there? I mean, one of the things that's happening in America today is this consolidation of healthcare. My husband, and, and I know that you know this, is a physician he asks this question all the time. What happens when institutions get too big to fail? Healthcare institutions are too big to fail. You know, they just can't make ends meet. And so we've got to be really, Amy, I think we have to be really aware of how healthcare is being delivered. And as we're driving out more and more independent organizations, we have to really focus on on that kind of consolidation and how is that going to work um, in terms of innovation in healthcare? How is that going to work? At the same time, 
that that's happening, we're seeing disruptors. By that, I mean imaging uh, centers that don't take insurance. But, you know, if you want to apply for it, you can, but they're not going to do the paperwork. But you can go in there and, you know, if you sprained your ankle playing softball, you can go get uh, an x-ray for 50 bucks and a radiologist, probably someone in India, is going to read it and get it back to you, but they don't guarantee anything. And so, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the, you saw this with Theranos you know, bad, bad, bad outcome, but an interesting disruptive um, uh, kind of model, right? So, so I think as you look forward, we've got, we've got this really interesting thing that's happening in healthcare, just writ large, which is this huge consolidation, but all this disruption that's going on um, in, in the tech space. I think what, what my focus has been to not, not assume that I can solve that problem or even think about that problem, it's I've got you know, 5,000 people in a, in a 100-mile radius of a healthcare facility, how do I guarantee that they have emergency services? How do I guarantee that if they need emergency services for delivering a baby, that's available? How do I guarantee that they have an ambulance? How do I guarantee that they can come in and get routine blood tests done? And how are we doing on those guarantees? I think not well. I, th- I think what we're, what we're going to see, you know, the old days of the doctor riding the circuit, you know, doing house calls, I think we're going to go back. To, I mean, if, if, if you wanted to think about a model, kind of everything that's old is new again. And think about instead of, for so many people in rural America, transportation is one of the reasons why they don't get the preventative care, driving up costs right? So if, if their diabetes goes unchecked, if their hypertension goes unchecked, and instead they have a stroke as opposed to some kind of early intervention. So if we had um, public health nurses who went from home to home checking on vulnerable elderly, we'd be able to keep them in their home longer. We'd be able to keep them in their rural community and still attending their church and still going down for coffee at the local cafe longer. And that's, that's part of who we are in rural America. One issue in rural healthcare, really in all of healthcare, but especially trenchant in, in the rural places, is maternal mortality, yep. which has gone up about a quarter since the year 2000. You've backed a number of bills to try and address this issue. One, one was a, to create maternal mortality review committees. Why do we need more committees at this point? rather than just pouring more resources into care delivery? I, I think that you can't solve a problem you won't admit you have. And I think, you know, what we've got is not every state has been covered by these kinds of um, commissions where you would take a look at it. I think that that's a critical component. But we were able to actually get some additional resources in the, in the, on the appropriation side to implement the bill that Senator Capito and I have introduced. I, I think not a lot of people know that this is an issue. And and what's interesting is a lot of people would say, well, it's where there's low quality care. But we've heard um, stories about this happening in very fancy and um, kind of rich people's hospitals. hospitals. Yeah. yeah. And and so I think that we haven't given enough attention to things like preeclampsia, enough attention, because I think everybody assumes that they, they don't assume that having a baby is a high-risk procedure, but we should treat it as it's a high-risk procedure because any, any delivery could turn into that. There was a New York Times article recently yeah. titled, and I know, I know you read this article. I've heard you talk about it. The article, uh, it's 4 a.m., the baby's coming. Coming, but the hospital is 100 miles away. This is not a hypothetical in your state. You've gotten to some of this. In North Dakota, nearly nine out of 10 counties had no hospital that provided childbirth services. And at the same time, there's very little access to birth control to prevent pregnancy in those counties. So Senator, what is the solution 
for rural women and families, especially in terms of preventing pregnancy? Well, I think that we are going to have to invest so that we can provide treatment closer to home. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And and one of the things that, that I, I tell everybody, I wake up every morning and I think about one thing. What am I going to do for rural America, particularly rural North Dakota today? And I do that because there's not a lot of people here who do. And rural health care for me, behind getting a farm bill and making sure that we have the economics of the farm program right, is is absolutely the next thing that I'm concerned about. We can talk about rural housing, but for me, rural health care. Grandpa and grandma are not going to stay in, you know, Manador, North Dakota, if they're 100 miles away from, from health care. Their kids aren't going to let them do that. And so we're seeing this retreat and this, this uh, migration of people out of rural America. We've got to get broadband services, which could be a, a multiplier in the healthcare space as well. We have got to do everything that we can to identify what are the critical healthcare needs that we expect to achieve within uh, proximity and how do we do that and pay for it so that we can maintain a provider network. And that's the challenge in rural healthcare. And that's the challenge I've been talking to um, CMS about. I think that's a challenge that I talk to my providers all the time about. You know, it's interesting. I I met with our healthcare, um, North Dakota Hospital Association. And I said, look, I'll work on 45, you know, I'll work on all these issues. I'll work on 340B. I'll work on uh, physician supervision. I'll work on critical access. And I, you know, we've got our list, standard list. They come in all the time. These are things that we absolutely have to maintain to provide services. I said, but look up. What does your delivery system look like in 20 years? How are we going to be able to afford that in 20 years? How are we going to maintain a provider network without certainty of reimbursement? You can't maintain a provider network. And, you know, North Dakota Medical Association and our our medical school under the able and very capable leadership of Josh Wynn, our dean, who's a cardiologist, has really begun to address the workforce challenges in rural America. Because this is, this is the other side of the coin, which is reimbursements, but you've got to have workforce. You, you, you aren't going to get workforce without a reimbursement system that allows people to make a living. You mentioned that your husband is a physician. Uh-huh. How often do the two of you disagree on healthcare issues? Uh, he's much more liberal on healthcare issues than I am. <laughs> I do have to tell you that. Well, then, that... I, you know, he would he would go to a single payer system, and and I think that's not politically practical. And I think that we might lose a lot of innovation if we do that. Well, then that leads into my last question. You're a Democrat. President Trump won your state by more than 30 points. You're running for re-election. You agree with the president on some things, disagree on others. That's how the Senate was intended. There aren't many of you left, though. How can we get more Heidi Heitkamp's who are in the middle of the road. Is that even possible anymore? Well, you know, I always said, if, if people who are listening can think of a visual, I talk about when I, when I first came to politics, ideology, the political spectrum was like a bow tie. You know, big knot in the middle, lots of moderates, but fanning out to more ideological, you know, uh, poles. Right? The senator is, yeah. is using her think hands this, to right? make a bow tie. Right? Yes. So a bow tie. I, now it's a dumbbell. And I, I, uh, I don't mean that ironically, um, but, but you've got huge ideologies on either side and then this, this, this thin bar of moderates that connect the two. And, you know, we, until we build on that base of moderates, 
we will not um, achieve results because it will be ideological driven. I have a, I have a. How, how's that, your back feeling picking yeah, up that big yeah, dumbbell yeah, yeah. being in the middle? Well, well, I, I mean, I always tell people there was a study done once. I was this. 50th most conservative and the 49th most liberal. So, you know, kind of meet in the middle. That's a big win for you. Well, I, I mean, that, but, but what, I, what I tell people is check your ideology at the door and bring facts and data. And then let's start looking at, here's a great example in healthcare. There's an incredible amount of innovation that's happening in the self-insurance area. These major corporations are greatly reducing their healthcare costs by managing their workforce and the healthcare of their workforce in really innovative and creative ways, and it's driving down their healthcare costs. Smart for them. They have a captive audience, obviously, and, and they have the flexibility because they're going to self-insurance programs. My argument is, what have they learned, and how can we learn something from them? And if we have one size fits all, are we going to be as innovative as what I mean, I, I really think that we have to be very, very concerned about diversity in delivery systems because I think once we go to one size fits all, we may miss the kind of innovation that we need to make healthcare um, uh, affordable and practical and efficient for everyone. Well, Senator Heidi Heitkamp, thank you for talking about your vision for healthcare and what healthcare is like in North Dakota. Well, it's a challenge in North Dakota, but um, one that we're up to because North Dakotans know how to get things done. That's it for Politico Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Senator Heidi Heitkamp and her staff for making time and space for an interview. And Mikaela Rodriguez for going into the bowels of the Capitol and emerging with a podcast recording. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. You can find me at ddiamondatpolitico.com. You can find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast player next week.